I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Home, it comes from within. The land and nature is a space of sanctuary, of healing. One good thing about living long enough is that you get to see yourself in different lights. The next chapter. CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. 2023 was a good year for Kai Thomas. He published his debut novel, In the Upper Country, in January, and in November it won the Atwood Gibson Writer's Trust Fiction Prize. Margaret Atwood made a surprise appearance at the event and gave Kai his award. His entire family was there, and it was a heartfelt moment. In our second half, contributor Ryan B. Patrick brings us an interview he did earlier in the year with Kai. For Christine Estima, 2023 was the year the collection of stories she'd worked on for years made it into book form. Christine did a deep dive into her family roots, and the result is the Syrian Ladies Benevolent Society. I'll speak with Christine in a couple of minutes. And bookseller slash therapist Max Arambulo will be here later to recommend three books that focus on paths to renewal and meaning in life. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Christine Estima grew up knowing about the Lebanese part of her family, but she was in her 20s before she realized her heritage was Syrian as well. It wasn't a secret, she says, just one of those family background things that suddenly became foreground. Christine has done a deep dive into the history of her family through their years of living in Montreal and beyond, and her new story collection pulls from that, showing the long history of Arab immigration in Canada. It's called the Syrian Ladies Benevolent Society, and it's populated by war heroes, freedom fighters, lovers, and city builders. Christine Estima joins me now in the Toronto studio. Hello, and welcome to the next chapter. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Christine, let me ask you, how did you see your cultural background when you were growing up? It's interesting because I think that when you grow up in a society like Canada that is incredibly multicultural, when you're a child, you don't necessarily think about it. Um, You just feel like you're like your other classmates until it is brought to your attention. Um, And it's usually brought to your attention by adults. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it was interesting to me to have, uh, you know, people come up to me and say, oh, you're half Lebanese and half Portuguese. So which side do you identify more with? And I was like, well, I'm both. (laughs) So I can't really you know, answer mm-hmm. that. And there would be other things like, oh, you're half and half. And I was like, isn't that what you put in your coffee? Like, you know, like, it's not how you like describe a person. And so it was always interesting to me to have to constantly explain my existence to people who didn't understand what, you know, a woman who is an Arab and a man who is Portuguese, why they would 
want to be together as if it was some like fantastical story when really it's just like any other Canadian story. Like they met and got married. We're just desperate to put people in a box. Absolutely. How do we define you, right? Absolutely. And I think that uh, for a lot of people, unless they're able to define you, they don't know how to talk to you. Like uh, I, I feel like they people think, well, if you're an Arab woman, you know, you have to think like this, but don't think like this and dress like this, but don't dress like this and say this, but don't say this. And I always wanted to kind of explore why people feel that way. And in in my own little revolutionary way, kind of bust that open and kind of provoke people and, you know, ask them, why do you feel that way about, you know, Arab women or even just people of a mixed ethnicity? What are these preconceived notions you have? Well, at the risk of further putting you in a box, I read this and really enjoyed the Montreal part of your identity. <laughs> I, I grew up in Montreal as well, yeah. and you, you paint a very fun picture uh, of the city in many ways. And many of those people in the stories are the people who make the city what it is. Uh, what role did your family play in Montreal through the many decades that, uh, that they were there and continue to be there now? Yeah, so my family has uh, deep roots in Montreal, which I also think is surprising to a lot of people. So on my uh, Lebanese and Syrian side, my great-grandfather came to Montreal from Damascus in 1906 and uh, was the priest of the uh, St. Nicholas Antiochian Orthodox Church, which still stands to this day on the corner of de Castelnau and uh, St. Dominique in the uh, Little Italy area. He was also a justice of the peace, and he started the very first Arabic language newspaper in Canada called Ashahab, which means the brilliant star. And um, his son, who was my Jiddo, Jiddo is the Arabic word for grandfather, was a war hero. You know, he um, was one of the few Arabs in the Canadian army during the Second World War. And he fought in the infamous bloody Battle of Ortona. Um, And, you know, luckily he came back. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Mm. So many Canadians were not so lucky. And so for me, um, Montreal and and my family, the two are are inextricably linked. You know, it's so important for me to paint a picture in this book to let people know that, you know, we've been here, you know, and we've been here for centuries. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. I think when they hear Arab Canadian or Syrian Canadian or Lebanese Canadian, they think it's a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. You know, they think of the Syrian refugee crisis, which is a serious crisis, um, but they don't realize that, you know, not only have we been here for centuries, but we have shaped the fabric of Montreal and by extension Canada. The book opens, the first story is set in 1860, mm-hmm. and it's a woman and her baby who are fleeing for their lives. Yeah. And they set sail for the, quote, castle of Montreal. <laughs> right? that's, yeah. a, that's the story of the, uh, yeah. uh, the, the, the title of that story. What is she escaping? Yeah, so that story is actually based on the stories of my family and why they left Lebanon, what was then known as Mount Lebanon. Um, there was the persecution done by a sect of a religious group known as the Druze. And they were persecuting uh, people who didn't um, adhere to their beliefs. And so in in that story, I kind of explore what that is, because my family's always told me we left because of the Druze. We left because we were being persecuted. And so in that story, we meet a woman and, you know, her home is being burned. Men are going off to fight and they're not coming back. Women are being assaulted and she has a young infant. And that story is very much about like 
a woman taking the death that surrounds her and turning it into a fighting chance for her life. And what does that look like? Um, when you're trying to be a mother, but mothering is incredibly difficult when you're fleeing on foot and trying to get to the ships that are leaving the port of Beirut and trying to uh, escape persecution. Um, perhaps you will make choices that could harm other people, but they serve yourself and it, it, it all becomes about self-preservation. And I was really interested in kind of exploring those issues. And the second story is the uh, is the title story. It's called the Syrian Ladies Benevolent Society. Did that society actually exist? It did. And this is something that I found out recently. So a few years ago when my sitto passed, uh, sitto is the Arabic word for grandmother, um, I was going through her things and I found a letter addressed to her from the Syrian Ladies Benevolent Society. And it was written in 1949. And it was congratulating her on the birth of my mother and also her, quote, successful confinement, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just delighted by this. I was like, this, I'd had no idea a society like this existed. It turned out it was adjunct to St. Nicholas's um, Antiochian Orthodox Church. And also I just found that like having um, a society like that, knowing about that today might be um, surprising to some people. People listening might be wondering, so I'm going to ask you about successful confinement. What did that, what did she mean by that? Yeah. So um, back in the day, giving birth was seen as an animalistic act. And after a woman gave birth, she was required to um, seclude herself from society for a few weeks, it could be as much as a month, in order to kind of cleanse herself of the animalistic mm. act of birth. Mm. And so women were expected to just kind of like, uh, I don't exist for like the next month while I care for my child, I suppose. Um the title story also features a prosperous and established businessman named um, Sefi. Yes, yeah, Sefi. Yeah. Sefi planning yeah. his daughter's wedding, and it seems, um, you know, one of the things that he does to let off steam, possibly, is wear women's clothes. Yeah. Uh, where did the idea for that story come from? Um, I think I was, um, I was really concerned with. Um, the idea within the Arab community about some of the prejudices we hold within ourselves. So um, there can be a lot of misogyny that is thrown about within the community that I've, you know, witnessed myself, and also a lot of queer phobia. And this was some. This was a time that that story takes place. I think 1933, 1934, and I was really interested in what does it mean to be part of a community that is ostracized within Montreal, but also within the community itself. Mm. People aren't really allowed to be who they truly are. Um, and what does that look like? You know, and here's a man who is, you know, he's running around Montreal trying to care for everybody and he can't truly be himself. And I was also really kind of interested in, you know, the the women that also populate that story kind of give him a hard time, like almost every woman that he encounters throughout the throughout the story isn't so benevolent. <laughs> mm. And what does that look like as well? And I had a few comments. It was interesting in the editing process of that story. There were a few comments like, you know, he's the protagonist, but he's he's also a bit of a misogynist. And I was like, yeah, yeah, he is. You know, it, it's That's interesting. That's the complexity. Exactly. Yeah. And I was really, really interested in having protagonists and having characters that were complicated, that were nuanced, 
that didn't necessarily have the same ethics and morals that I, as a 21st century woman, have. Mm. And at the same time, while they may be making mistakes, you still root for them. You still want them to figure it out. And sometimes they almost do. And that was important to me. It's a very interesting story. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, another story you re- write in this book is called Ortona, mm. set in Italy during the Second World War. And Ortona is where a very bloody battle was fought that I learned about. And your grandfather fought in that battle as one of the few Arab men serving in the Canadian Army. Mm. You don't focus on that. In, in, it's not his story. Yeah. It's actually the story you, you choose to tell is the one of this young Lebanese woman from Montreal who was recruited to be an Allied spy. How did, how did her story come to you? Yeah, I, I, I feel like when it comes to the Second World War or even the Great War before it, the contributions of women to the war effort have been forgotten and that women being used as spies by the Allies was, um, after the war, it became really well known. And we have some famous names, you know, Josephine Baker was one of the, she was a spy for the French. And I think a lot of people don't know that. And for me, I wanted to bring it home ag- again to f- shine a light on the stories of Arab women. So let's let's explore this and let's see where the story goes. You mentioned your Jiddo and your Sitto mm. uh, grandfather and grandmother. And mm-hmm. grandfather and grandmother characters appear throughout these stories, mm-hmm. um, especially the larger-than-life uh, larger uh, character that is Sitto. And then you also dedicate this book to, to, my sito. to your Sitto, right? Yeah. T- tell us about her. Oh, bless her soul. So my Sito was, I think my feminism is directly informed by her. Um, Her name was Louise Zarbatani and born and raised in Montreal. And her father abandoned the family when she was really young. And so she had to, she only got up to grade seven and then she had to go work in a factory. She was a seamstress her entire life. Um, and she was very much like she wouldn't let anybody pull a fast one. You know, she was no shrinking violet. Um, she was no wallflower. And that's what I really loved about her. And I find that her voice comes out in a lot of stories um, in this book because, again, I think it's surprising for people to learn that Arab women are also incredibly strong-willed and have agency. As you talk about women with agency. I'm thinking about this story, Belly Dancer. Yes. I wanted to ask you about that too. The young woman in this story becomes engaged in Montreal to Gustave, who's a French-Canadian young man. And then there's an engagement party where all the families meet. Yeah. And the young woman performs a belly dance. And then not long after that, her fiance gets cold feet. How, how do you see that engagement party unfolding? Belly dancing is, is something that, you know, I guess within our community, it's not seen as necessarily something that's like exotic Mm. or even provocative. Um, And so to have a scene where, you know, the Arabs are on one side and the French Canadians are on the other and they're just kind of watching as like this affianced young woman is, you know, shaking and gyrating her hips um, is incredibly sexualized and perhaps not something that polite people in proper genteel society would expect at an engagement party. And it was it was interesting having that imagery and writing that story to kind of show that, like, 
yeah, I can love you, but just can you can you leave all of your cultural attributes behind while I love you, you know? And can you not be so Arab? Can you just kind of assimilate a little bit more? And that's kind of the undercurrent that mm-hmm. I think runs through that story is that he, here is a, a, a man uh, who is engaged to, you know, an Arab woman, and he's also just kind of realizing like, oh, I didn't realize she came with all of this, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also kind of maybe a, a microcosm of what we experience, you know, within Canadian society is like, sure, you can be an Arab, but can you not like talk about it? And can you not actually be so Arab? And, and, and you know, can you not support causes that I disagree with? Um, things like that. Sure. So I, that was a really interesting because I wanted to also, I didn't want to, shove that in the reader's face and be like, here, it's didactic. You know, I wanted people to be engaged with a heartbreaking story. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, I really, I enjoyed that, reading about that idea of, of, of being in love with someone despite who they are, not because of who they are. Mm. It's a very, very common thing, mm. but I, I really enjoyed the way you presented that. Oh, thank you. Many of the characters in the story, it's pretty clear they love Montreal. They're very deeply connected to it and invested in that city, but... yeah. They also have their either feet or hearts in in another place in in, in Lebanon. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Having your feet in two places and two cultures. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, when you're born and raised in Canada, but your family came from another country, you can feel two completely polar opposite things. One, you can feel like I am disconnected from that country where my family came from, but I want to know more. I want to feel closer to that. At the same time, you can feel disconnected in Canada because nobody looks like you and the culture isn't, you know, catering to you perhaps. And that can feel a little confusing because you don't necessarily feel like you fit in in Canada, but you don't necessarily feel like you fit in in your family's, your ancestral country as well. And so really, for me, I think the book is a lot about well, maybe this might sound a little hokey, but home is, it comes from within. The only home you'll ever have is in, within yourself. Even if it does sound hokey, it's like truer words have never been spoken. I went through the same thing as, a, you know, the child of Pakistani immigrants who sure. go to Pakistan, this place that has been, you know, just put on a pedestal to me as a young person. And I go there and I'm like, these people don't. <laughs> They don't like me at all. They just I'm, I'm the subject of huge mockery over here. And Absolutely. Back in Montreal, I was never quite, you know, like a French Canadian or white kid either. So I, exactly. I completely connected with that. Uh, Rue Rouberry is the street where many of the characters grew up, and they lived in Montreal. And the story Rouberry, in that story, Azure goes back to that house, sifts through the memories, lived and the lives that were lived there. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you this. Are we all just sort of amalgams of, of who and what has gone before us? Is that do, do you look at things that way? It's interesting that you ask that because I think that that is one of the key questions that like the book tries to answer. Like, are we just a product of the people and the places that came before us? Or can we be in this constant act of becoming and renewal? Can we break free from some of the traps that befell our ancestors or... You know, is it's somewhere in between? Can we be a product of them and also at the same time take that story three times around the dance floor? And I think the only answer to that is yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily have the answer for that. I feel like 
I'm not necessarily endorsing a way of life. I just describe one and uh, I ask questions and I provoke thought. But at the end of the day, the reader is kind of left to make their own decisions, I think. Yeah. Yeah. In the final story in this book, it's called Mabruk. And Mabruk is a word I've heard very often throughout my life. And there's a similar word in Urdu, Mubarak. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it has a few different meanings, but blessed or blessed Absolutely. Right, is, is yeah. the one that comes up most. Why, why use that word for your for your final story? <laughs> My boyfriend's going to love this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, him and I had kind of have like this little special language where, um, you know, that special spot on your neck kind of between your collarbone and like your ear. Yeah. That when you snuggle up to somebody, there's kind of like a special sense there that I think only intimate partners really kind of um, become familiar with mm-hmm. and become very well acquainted with. And I call, we call that the Mabruk. So every time I snuggle up into her, I'm like, oh, I, w- I, w- I want to be in the Mabruk. And, mm-hmm. and that's what we call it. And, you know, he um, he's Italian, but his last name um, is Mabruko. And oh. because there is um, an Arab ancestor in there. And so it was interesting to kind of pair that together where his last name, along with the Arab word, along with the benediction, and then kind of pair that with the city of Montreal. That story is very Montreal-focused, and that story kind of takes you through the relationship that is deteriorating, but you get to go through the city and see all those different places where they once had a special moment before they finally kind of like say goodbye to each other. Mm-hmm. But you can still really appreciate that person, even if the relationship is falling apart, and it can still be a mabruk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Very nice to talk to you today, Chris. Thank you so much. Oh, likewise. I really enjoyed it. Christina Stima is the author of The Syrian Ladies Benevolent Society. She spoke with me in our Toronto studio. Hi, my name's Joey O'Neill, and I'm a folk singer-songwriter from the Yukon. I'm currently reading to anyone who ever asks the life, music, and mystery of Connie Converse, written by Howard Fishman. The book is really um, an exploration of Connie Converse, who was a singer-songwriter before the title or genre of singer-songwriter really existed. And it's the story of her life, her art, and her eventual disappearance. I was introduced to Connie Converse's music about 10 years ago. She was making a lot of music in the 50s and maybe not even really performing that much and not amounting to too much commercial success. But um, it seems that she was sort of disillusioned um, over the next couple decades and sometime in the 70s she wrote a letter to her family and friends saying that she was leaving and I think she packed up her Volkswagen Beetle, and no one had ever really heard from her since. So there's a lot of mystery there, and um, yeah, in this in this book, Howard Fishman does a really amazing job about um, interviewing her brother and people in her life, and um, just sort of focusing on the musical landscape at the time, and maybe different reasons why she would become disillusioned, and just... Um, researching the history and all of the components that 
might have led her to disappear. I really identified with her stories. Over the last decade, I was living in a cabin in the woods in the Yukon. So um, just hearing a woman sing about being alone in the woods and liking it, um, which, you know, at the time in the 50s was not really the story that many women were telling or were like allowed to tell since a lot of songs were written for musicians at the time. And, you know, just hearing someone telling her own story and being okay with being alone in the bush was quite refreshing. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Kai Thomas won the 2023 Atwood Gibson Writers Trust Fiction Prize last month, and it was for his debut novel, In the Upper Country. Our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, interviewed Kai early this year when the book was originally published. And Ryan is sitting with me in studio right now to tell us a bit more about Kai before we hear his interview. Hi, Ryan. Ali, how are we doing? I'm doing great. I haven't won anything. Uh, what does this win do for, for Kai and his book? Um, it's amazing. So I'm so happy for Kai Thomas. He's an Ottawa writer. Um, he's now living in the upper New York State. It, it, it's life-changing, pretty much. It, it's a groundbreaking debut novel. Imagine winning for your debut book. I know you're an author. Um, so this is an amazing fiction book. And he won $60,000 for the Atwood Gibson Writers Trust Fiction Prize, which is recognizes the best Canadian novel or short story. So, And what was really cool is that Margaret Atwood herself was there uh, at the live event. Um, Kai had his family there, brought them up from New York State, his mom, his, his family. And it was so cool to see Atwood. It was kind of an emotional moment. Atwood was there, gave him the prize. So not too bad having $60,000 uh, in your hand. <laughs> I bet. All right, thanks. Let's listen to Kai Thomas in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick. So hello, Kai, and welcome to the next chapter. Hello. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about your new novel, your debut novel. It's called In the Upper Country. It is a work of historical fiction. It's set in the mid-19th century in the Great Lakes region of the U.S. and Canada in Dunmore, which is a fictional town set in southern Ontario, I actually went to the University of Windsor, so I'm familiar with that region. We're talking about Chatham, Windsor, Wallaceburg, Tilsbury, what have you. So tell us about that re- region in your own words. What, what's the legacy of this region, particularly as it relates to black and indigenous people? Sure, sure. Um, so the, uh, this region is you know, really interesting, especially in the period that, that the novel is set in. So between 1850 and emancipation in the U.S., 65, there was a massive influx of black folks fleeing enslavement in the American South. Um, What happened in 1850 was the Fugitive Slave Law was passed in the U.S., which meant Mm -hmm. that 
folks fleeing enslavement could no longer find relative safety, even in the northern U.S. states where slavery had, had been abolished for quite some time because it was a law that kind of deputized regular people to, to catch and, and return them to bondage. And so Canada, that was really the, the, you know this period where Canada became associated as the destination of the Underground Railroad is this kind of 15-year period. And before that time, and especially during that time, a number of communities, in particular in southern Ontario, emerged. And these were communities, some were uh, attached onto uh, some of the towns that you're mentioning, Chatham, Windsor, Owen Sound. Mm. And some were new communities that that emerged and, and were kind of settled and often agrarian, but not exclusively. Yeah, I just thought it was this really interesting period in history because we, we, as Canadians, you know, we have this association with the Underground Railroad and we know that, that it happened and Canada was, was the promised land for, for many of these people fleeing enslavement. But, you know, perhaps we don't know as much as, as we think of, about what life was like in these communities, why, for example, many of them did not survive the test of time what was the social life? What was the, what were the struggles of people in in these places as they navigated their their newfound freedom? And so mm. that's that's what I was interested in uh, right. getting into, in 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 setting the book where I did. So how much of yourself do you see in this novel? Because you're a writer, but you're also a carpenter and a land steward. Like you work with the land um, in terms of farms and and whatnot. How much is yeah. that? that background shape your storytelling? Very much so. I would say that, you know, for me, the land and nature is a space of sanctuary, of healing, of, you know, feeling empowered, especially in terms of learning how to grow food, learning how to, you know, work with with ecologies, and especially in an era of climate crisis. So that is a big part of my life, and I, I struggle sometimes to articulate the ways in which those experiences translate to writing mm-hmm. uh, and to you know uh, putting putting pen to paper. But there's so much uh, so much that one can learn uh, when it comes to you know being on land, learning those kind of hard skills, and and at the end of the day, I feel as though writing is a skill that can really benefit, or I've at least experienced the benefit mm. of uh, experiencing different ways of thinking. So whether that be, you know, through hands-on skills, through, you know, applied sciences, applied maths, knowing what it what it means to observe like a system that's as complex as an ecology and try and work with it, it takes an attention to detail that I think is transferable to the page. And the book revolves around two women whose fates are intertwined. Can you tell us about these two women and how they meet? Sure. So the protagonist, the central narrator of the book, is a woman named Lencinda. And Lencinda is is a young woman who finds herself in, in Dunmore working for a black journalist and activist. And Lencinda is literate and it works for her as a scribe and then eventually as as a journalist and the novel opens as another character has been imprisoned for shooting and killing a, a slave hunter this kind of premise came out of 
some of the research that I was doing and I was finding that there were instances of slave and bounty hunters coming north of the border to try and capture people, kidnap them and take them to, to be enslaved. And so Lencinda sits down in the jail with, with this, this other person who happens to be a very old woman and they have a series of conversations which Lencinda initially you know, wants to be simple, cut and dry, let me interview you, let me take your story. Uh, but the old woman has different, different designs for her and instead challenges her to engage in an exchange of stories. Mm. And so uh, that exchange of stories, a tale for a tale, as, as they call it, forms the core narrative structure of the book. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So what jumps out to me is she works as a writer, a journalist. Uh, What did your research tell you in terms of what her life might have been like at that time as a journalist, as someone seeking and documenting truth, being who she is? Her character, as well as a couple others, were were modeled off of uh, a few different real-life people, one of whom, Marianne Shad, uh, Mm. was involved in starting the first black newspaper of the region. So I drew from, you know, real life historical figures as well as tried to just read between the lines. And, you know, the thing that I love about about fiction is you get to do that, right? You get Mm -hmm. to not only try and model what you find, in my case, in the history books and in interviewing historians and talking with elders and, and knowledge holders, but you get to read between those lines and you know I, I found myself reading books that did a little bit of that that work for me so for example uh Saidia Hartman has a book called Wayward Lives and Beautiful Experiments that does some of that creative work but is still really grounded in history and in fact so yeah you know I, I just did a lot of reading and tried to identify the areas that weren't going to be found in in those sources for example, you know, what a dialogue look like between somebody like Marianne Shad and her contemporaries? What did, what did gossip look like in these communities? These are things that aren't necessarily going to show up in historical records. Sometimes they do in interesting ways, but for the most part, that's kind of the fun, the, the fun part for me is I get to kind of imagine those dynamics, those conversations, those touches, smells, all of the above and, and create a work of fiction out of it right so speaking of fiction obviously there has been works before depicting slavery the slave narrative the underground railroad how did you want to approach this story and what new essentially did you want to bring to the table in in terms of writing historical fiction within that era one being the the centrality of you know the black characters relationships to indigenous characters that is a historical relationship that I, I personally hadn't seen uh, depicted almost at all in, in fiction. And I was finding ample evidence of it in history books. And, you know, in my lived experience, you know, I have ample evidence of Black and Indigenous people connecting, having relationships, having interesting conversations, having, in some cases, political alliances, all of the above. It was important to bring that historical relationship into the novel in meaningful ways. Another thing that I tried to do, which 
has been done to be sure, but I don't see a lot of is to try and represent, you know, these characters who are marginalized or oppressed as powerful agents of their own experience, as powerful characters who are capable of, you know, all of the things that humans are inflicting violence on other people. They're capable of hate and love and, and all of the rest, but who are placed at the center of, of a story that is about them having power. Mm. And that is tricky to do. I found it tricky to do because, you know, oppression and the types of struggles and challenges that a black person in mid-19th century North America faced are significant, obviously. And so it's tricky to really home in on these uh, scenes of power in ways that are not romanticized or unrealistic. But that was just a really good challenge for myself to dig into the research and say, okay, you know, where am I seeing you know, instances of black and indigenous people taking power in very meaningful ways? And let me represent uh, mm-hmm. what that could have looked like on the right. page. That was contributor Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Kai Thomas. Kai's debut novel, In the Upper Country, is the winner of the 2023 Atwood Gibson Writers Trust Fiction Prize. Max Arambulo has had a long career in books. He worked in publishing for many years until he left to become a psychotherapist with a specialty in spiritual care. These days, he combines his psychotherapy practice with his work as a bookseller and manager at Type Books in Toronto. Max is here in the Toronto studio with me today to talk about three books that focus on healing and renewal in the face of life's struggles. Hi, Max. Welcome to the next chapter. Thanks for having me, Ali. Tell us about this uh, first book that you brought in to talk about today. So maybe I'll talk about One Native Life by Richard Wagamese. Richard was a Ojibwe man. He died in 2017. And this is his memoir in vignettes um, throughout his life. It starts off when he's a six-year-old in foster care, goes to his teens when he was not living in a home, when he was unhoused, sort of living on the streets, living in his car, doing a lot of manual labor, finding ways to, like, thrive and survive, making connections with people, mentors, teachers, and then goes back to him rediscovering his uh, Ojibwe family, his roots, the pain that separated him from them. And it's told from this point of view of him as a... He sounds like an, an older man, but he's 54 in the book when he's writing it, living in a sort of cabin in a mountain in B.C., that's the book, His Life in Beautiful Vignettes. So Richard Wagamese, I'm a big fan personally. Um, he was a, a great friend to this show and a very close friend of Sheila Rogers, interviewed many times mm-hmm. on the next chapter before his death. Tell me what you learned about uh, Richard's life and, and philosophy in this book. So I think there's one line in it, but he says something like, one good thing about living long in a is that you get to see yourself in different lights and you get to smile and laugh wistfully at the people who touched you. Mm. I'm not there yet. 
<laughs> the lights I see myself in the past maybe are not so smiley or laughing yet, but the way he writes about really hard things in his life maybe gives me hope of how I might want to sound in 10 years. I, you know. um, so that gives me hope. You'd mentioned that you like sad books, funny books, sad, funny books. So what a perfect book because Richard Wagamese suffered you know, trauma in his own life but was also very funny and, 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 and saw the good everywhere. So how does he balance those things in, in the book in your opinion? I think there's one chapter where he talks about music. He talks about um, his record collection that had a lot of Otis Redding, Billie Holiday, and then talks about despite the fact that he loved all this music, he couldn't dance. He couldn't dance. He would like, school dances were a failure. And then he talks about the first time he went to a powwow in Saskatchewan and finally hearing those drums and that music and finding that he could dance <laughs> and that he could move his body. And to me, it's um, something also about how like that music he discovered in that part of his life maybe opened a door for this part of his life. All right, tell us about the second book that you brought in. So I brought Stay True by Hua Shu. It covers his life from when he was a teenager, uh, the son of Taiwanese immigrants in California, moves through to his college years where he's, you know, creating zines, writing music reviews, trying to find identity through pop culture, meets a classmate named Ken who is Japanese-American, both Asian, but very different. Uh, Hua describes himself as sort of a, a cool hipster and Ken sort of being this more straightforward, um, preppy type of person. But they connect very deeply. But after about a year and a half of friendship, Ken is killed at random. So a lot of the book is Hua trying to work through the grief still 20 years later. What does it mean that that happened? Were the ways that got him through that? And for me, um, you know, I've been a fan of his writing in The New Yorker. I loved reading how he went from this sort of snide pop culture kid writing about music in this annoying, cool way to this writer in The New Yorker who it seems like every piece means something, matters. This book, uh, Stay True, it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2023. What do you think it was that got that jury so um, engaged or beguiled with it? Is it, is it? It's more than just a story about friendship, obviously. You know, books and stories about male friends, sometimes not the most common thing, especially when there's a lot of tenderness and love and grief and sadness. There's a beautiful section in here about a correspondence between Hua and his father when Hua was uh, in high school and his father had moved back to Taiwan. And they send faxes back and forth about Hua's school, but mostly about the music they're listening to. And Hua does something really interesting where he keeps his father's diction and the imperfect English. He, re, he sort of reprints it in here. And it's sometimes, you know, being brown men in this culture ain't the most straightforward thing. And we're looking for ways to reconnect with where we're from, who we're from, and to have this sort of uh, Hua having this in-the-moment correspondence with his homeland, <laughs> with his ancestor, with his father. You know, it might have been different if his father was just there sort of on his shoulder telling him, you got to do this, you got to do that. But they were, had this distance um, that maybe created something richer. It made me wonder about my own relationship with my father and, uh, and other people in my family and how to do it and how to be more open. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe another reason this book really resonated is, I think about six years ago, a friend of mine 
was killed in a similar way, was shot um, randomly. Um, I'm still working towards what it meant. It inspired me in a lot of ways to make changes in my life, to be better friends with, with my friends now. Sorry about your loss there. I, you know, when someone is young and loses somebody senselessly, as I have too, and as this writer does in this memoir, it can, you know, really profoundly alter your worldview. What does it do to Huaju in, in, in this book as, uh, as this happens to him? A lot of unpredictable things he describes, actually. Like, you'd think, you know, you write a memoir, you get, you experience something, you have healing, and you figure it out, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it leaves him with a lot of questions. At one point in the book, he talks about discovering some of the legal documents of the trial of the people who had killed his friend Ken, and it almost had no answers for him. It was, like, so banal. Um, there were n no connections between the killers and him. So he wonders about, he has more questions. Um, and then later on, a bit of a spoiler, but he meets a counselor at his university who asks him questions about his culture, the way he was raised, who he is as a person. So I guess there's no answer or it leaves him with questions and less answers. Mm. But we know who he is now. So maybe there are some guesses we can make at how it might have impacted him. You know, it's interesting. In in One Native Life, Richard Wagamese uses his culture to deal with, you know, various challenges in his life and, and move forward and as a, as a way to navigate through the world. Um, is that not an option here for Huaju? You would think, you know, um, on the surface as a man who w might be connected to his, his culture, either, you know, at least through his father, that search for connection to, you know, generations past. Does he is he able to 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 draw on that? I guess uh, to me, um, you know, culture seems to be the stuff, the energy, the people that will stick with you when you need it the most. That'll help you heal. That'll help you sort of celebrate it. It, it helps you like to feel closer to who you are. I think uh, Hua created a, a culture with Ken. It seemed like up until his friendship with Ken, the way he tried to show who he was, was he talks about writing about the things he didn't like, like 90210 or Pearl Jam. He would, he would mm -hmm. like use his, his intellect and uh, his opinions as, oh, this is who I am. It doesn't seem like it sustained him when Ken died, but there's a culture between uh, Hua and Ken that probably, even though it was a lot of pain, probably helped sustain him for the rest of his life. And there's a culture between Hua and his father so culture comes in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about the, the last book that you brought. So I brought Tremor by Teju Cole. He wrote Open City about 10 years ago. He's a professor. He's a photographer. He's an artist. And Tremor has a character named um, Tunde at the center of it, who is also a person of Nigerian descent and a photography professor in it. So it follows his life. It opens with him at an antique store in the States finding a... Um, you know, an African item. And it, the first few pages are him wondering about how does an item get there to the States? Um, what does it mean? What's the history of it? And then it follows him as he, Tunde, as he goes to a um, photography biennial in Mali, engages with the culture there. There's a section where he gives a lecture on a Turner painting, which has a slave ship and uh, talks about what that means. 
It's a very meandering book. Maybe the connections don't make total sense right in the moment, but as the sort of connections pile up and aggregate, oh, this is coming together to mean something. And then what, what happens to him? I know it meanders, but what happens to this protagonist in the, in the story? You know, nothing much happens to him, actually. <laughs> he goes to Mali, he dances, listens to music, he reflects on friendships um, that he had in the past, he wonders about his current relationship with his wife. I think one thing that the book does a lot, though, is it talks about who we might have been if we had stayed in our ancestral lands. To me, there's a lot of twinship in it. You know, Nigerian author writing about a Nigerian character. Is that me or could that have been me? When Tunde encounters um, African men outside the Louvre, maybe it doesn't explicitly wonder, but I wondered, does he think that could have been him or what made him different from those people? I think that's what the book might be about, for me at least. What if we met the version of ourselves who didn't leave where we were from? Would you say that's what made it an outstanding read? That 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 idea that you think about because I I love that my parents came here from Pakistan to New Brunswick and then to Montreal, and I'm always like, who would I have been if I was born in Pakistan, or who would I have been if I was born in New Brunswick? I I really I almost obsess about ideas like that. Is is that what makes this a great read, or is there is there more to it in the writing style? Or I think that's what I love the most is. Like, what would I do if I ran into that guy? Mm. Would I be embarrassed of him? Would I be jealous of him? Would I love him? Would I be scared of him? And I think those are, can be questions that, like, can heal us too. I think in the Richard Wagamese book, he talks about, like, not examining these questions and then not feeling like who you are. But when you ask the questions... And you wonder and you discover, like, the good parts of those lives, of who you could have been or where you're from, and the bad parts, then you can feel more like yourself instead of being a, um, a guest or a witness in your own life. So that's, a, that's the way the book helped me, I think, is uh, helping me ask those questions a little bit more. I don't know if you'll have an answer to this, but I'll ask you this as a last question. The three books that you brought in, all, they, all of them deal with uh, people trying to find meaning among stuff that's maybe meaningless or seemingly meaningless. Is there something that each writer points to as a way to do that? <laughs> each of them mentions music. Tejikul writes about Tunde ex- experiencing the African rhythms in Mali and feeling like the life he lives in a normal life might be really good for his intellect, but maybe not the best for his spirit. Hua writes about the way he liked music as a teenager, but the way he liked it a little bit differently and the way he was connecting with his dad. And Richard talks about the way John Lennon and Bruce Springsteen sustained him in the years when he he needed sustenance. So music, and I also think um, music leading them deeper to where they needed to go, to their bodies, to their culture, to their family. The power of music is no joke. All right, thanks so much, Max. Max Arambulo is a psychotherapist and a bookseller and manager of Type Books in Toronto. The books he was talking about today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. And that is it for our program today. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. And my thanks this week to Emily Chiarvesio and to the CBC Books digital team. 
Coming up next week, Cape Breton's Leslie Crew on her bestseller, Recipe for a Good Life. Leslie's recipe includes raisin tea biscuits and ocean air. And our colleague Talia Kliat will be here to recommend three historical fiction novels to start off the year. And on that note, Happy New Year. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.